the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. We think often of what it means, the, the significance of, of the spiritual heritage that many of us have, those that have a connection to the history of the church and faith um, through the faith of our fathers. And as much as we oftentimes ponder what that means, how often do we stop and think about the faith of not just our fathers, but the faith of our sons? The reality is that as much as the gospel message is timeless, we're seeing the way current generations react to it, and and most notably, how oftentimes we're beginning to see a shift taking place, that while the faith of our fathers and that generation and maybe the current generation is strong, the faith of our sons and our daughters is on weak grounds. There is some new research out by the respected pollster George Barna. In fact, he's been a guest on this program many times that would suggest that there is a frightening trend taking place amongst 20-somethings in our country today. And to get some insights on this topic, David Kinneman joins us. He has written a new book entitled You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. He serves also as the president of the Barna Group. And David, great to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. You know, we always want to hear about uh, the enthusiasm of young people and their relationship with Jesus Christ. I know that fondly, there's a good percentage of those listening to our conversation right now who found Christ uh, as young children or as teenagers and have continued on in faith uh, for years and years and years. And yet to begin to see that there is a trend taking place that isn't a very encouraging one, I I think ought to cause all of us to pause and ask the question, What's happening? If we understand that the gospel is timeless, then what of Christianity today in the West, in North America, that suddenly is not maintaining the same appeal, so to speak, for those in that uh, special age group of late teens into their 20s? Well, what's challenging for us now is that the culture has changed so quickly over the last 10, 20 years that we make the argument in the research that essentially people are more enculturated than ever. They're more captive to our culture than we've ever seen a generation done so. And this is true of young Christians. This is true of young non-Christians. They have more access to all sorts of ideas and worldviews through technology. Uh, They have, you know, exposure to, uh, you know, sexuality and all sorts of things earlier in life. Media is giving them a certain sort of worldview and perspective. And so for those reasons, and many others, a lot of social changes, they're getting married much later, they're having children much later, they're responding to the divorce culture that the boomers largely you know, enacted in our culture. And so for many reasons, they're, they're, they're disengaging from the church, they're disengaging from Christianity in some cases, and we do need to pay attention to this cultural reality and how is it that we actually raise young people of deep faith. Is this then less about perhaps a particular age group then on the on the continuum uh, david as it is 
suggestive of the church losing some of its grasp, some of its influence then on culture? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting you ask me that, because when you talk about this phrase, you lost me, we very intentionally titled it because that's the voice of the next generation about the church. You know, you lost me, I don't get it, I don't, I don't understand. And part of it's because they're so distracted, they're so busy doing other things. But I, I think you're actually really on point with that question in that what we're finding from a lot of our research is it's certainly true of the next generation and how we work with them, but it's also true of all of us in this culture, of any, of any generation, that we're more distracted, our attention spans are shorter, we have more, there's more things that are vying for our you know, time and attention and mind space. And so I think it's more difficult for the gospel to go forward in this, you know, very abundant, um, pluralist, uh, you, you know, very, you know, very rich country that we have. And, and no nation has ever been able to really withstand the prosperity that, that America currently enjoys. I think that's the kind of question we need to ask ourselves is how do we disciple in that era, not just the next generation, but all of us. Well, and I think not just the appeal, as you're suggesting, of, of all that uh, that uh, the culture, so to speak, has to, to offer in every sense of the word. <clears throat> but then, too, it strikes me, David, that, that relationships uh, have changed uh, pretty significantly. I mean, I, for example, having grown up as a product of the 1960s and 70s, having come to faith in Christ in the 1970s, um, it didn't take a lot of explaining to do when we talked about uh, what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to walk in fellowship with very God himself. I mean, we were all in that era longing for a, a deeper, more significant, more satisfying relationship on, on the human level. So that, that meant something to us. And those were words and phrases that resonated with, with the longing that we were seeking to satisfy. That said, look at the way things have changed for this generation that has grown up on uh, cable television and the internet and texting and you know, relationships today are about what you do on the backside of an iPhone as opposed to the level of, of, of contact, that the just pure human contact that we used to have has changed so radically. And so I would wonder if part of this is just the notion of how we do relationships has changed so much. Um, if, if I can't relate to a personal one-on-one -on -one conversation with my dad, because I'm used to doing all this stuff electronically, how can I possibly think about a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with a God that I can't even see? That's, that's really well said. And when you think about it, so when you talk about a youth group or a college ministry, and in the past, 20 years ago, that provided a sort of extracurricular place for a person to have a relationship, uh, not only with God, but also with, with each other, with other Christians and what we're seeing with the youngest generation of teenagers now, uh, young Christians, is that the youth group experience is even changing in that they don't need the social network of the youth group like they did in the past. It's, it's really more about either their pursuit of God or their pursuit of other kinds of things. Um, you know, we're finding that their, their engagement in youth ministry is, is, is changing. And I think this goes to the heart of it that you know, what we found in this research is that it's not enough for us just to have young people who are engaged in church services and, and really as parents or youth pastors or as, uh, any kind of leader within a church, we need to do a better job of recognizing that the signs of faithfulness aren't just attendance at a program, that in fact, as we're living in an information world, I think that Jesus is getting lost in the data stream of all the, the tweeting and Facebooking and digital activities that we have. And just as you say, it's hard enough to have face-to-face -face relationships with others I think this idea of connecting with a real and holy and personal God is actually really 
changing for this generation. And, and unfortunately, most churches and parents say, well, you know, my, my young person is there, they're, they're attending faithfully, and that's not, in my mind, enough of a measure based on all this research of faithfulness. It's part of the problem, too, as we suggested here, David, that the way we do relationships, um, certainly in the West today, is changing pretty drastically. It's easy for people to hide behind the facade of Facebook and MySpace and so-called social media, where you can kind of uh, you can be as vulnerable or not as you choose to be, you can be as real or not as you choose to be, and when suddenly you're now trying to confront young people with a real, vibrant, true, pure, um, all of the bells and whistles and 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 sort of a facade all stripped down personal relationship with God, I would I would wonder if we couch it in the terms that we did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if that doesn't scare a lot of young people today, because they look and say, I don't want that. I don't want anybody to know me that that real or that intimately or that personally. I would rather hide behind the facade of who I want you to think I am, because I'm too afraid to show you who I am. Yeah, I think that's true. And and we learned from our research that a lot of these young people feel as though they have to live split lives, uh, split personalities between their church self, their digital self, their family self, their school self. And, and so this era of, you know, helping, and, and this is an opportunity for families and churches and all of us who care about this next generation to help reconnect the soul and the person and the heart, mind, soul, and strength that Jesus talks about. And, and so I think there's a great opportunity for churches, but this idea of split souls, um, you think about that even in terms of sexuality, we see this from the research that many young people feel split. They, they have to be one person in church, traditionalist and buttoned up and, you know, uh, careful about what they say, and then something else entirely when it comes to their sexual, you know, habits and lives. And so we, we have to do a lot of work. I mean, there's a lot of things we should be concerned about with this generation, and I think there's a lot of things we ought to be concerned about, about how we as the church respond in a healthy way to the culture and how we prepare students to live in that culture. Indeed so. And the other thing, too, is, you know, oftentimes not only is there this sense of a split, as you suggest, but then I think a lot of young people feel as if they're being forced to choose one or the other. It's like the faith of my fathers or uh, whatever option B is. And we'll talk more about this aspect. We continue our conversation tonight with David Kinneman. He is the president of the Barna Group, a new book out that is an eye-opener. It's called You Lost Me. Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith, as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation with David Kinneman. David is the president of Barna Group, Barna Research. You're very familiar with the work of George Barna. They have taken time to, to study, in particular, the faith of our sons and daughters and to see in what direction all of that is headed. And all of this revealed inside the pages of a new book, by the way, entitled You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church. David, as you indicated, and we were talking a bit before the break, what's really happening here is that the, the as the church is losing its influence on culture today, and as the stranglehold of the power that said culture has on young people today is, is ever increasing, I mean, it, it's clear to see how this is being set up as kind of a, a perfect storm, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, and I think it's this whole research project, I mean, I'm interested in it as a researcher. I'm also interested in it as a parent. I'm interested as a, 
a pastor's son who, who grew up in the church, and it's really, for me, helped me understand how do we actually work with this generation in the midst of a changing culture. And, you know, the title is strong because that's the, what young people say about the church, but it's really a very hopeful project about how do we actually reconnect with this generation? How do we actually learn faithfulness in a new context? We use the story of Daniel, um, you know, from Scripture, where, you know, he was taken out of a, a comfortable social setting, you know, as a young Hebrew and taken into this culture of Babylon. We learn about that in the book of Daniel in, in Scripture. And uh, we use that story really often in the book as a way of understanding what does it mean to be faithful in an entirely new context. And I think that's what we're facing now with this generation of young Christians. All right, let me give you an example. This is right out of the front pages here. Uh, in fact, a story that appeared on ESPN regarding uh, Tim Tebow. Everybody knows that he's been taking some flack uh, most specifically recently, former Broncos quarterback Jake Plummer uh, in a radio interview that uh, basically said that uh, he wished that Tebow would curb, quote, his references to Jesus and his faith, um, saying effectively, we're getting the message. You don't have to continue to remind me time and time again. Um, th- through the lens of this research, uh, talk to me about that scenario. Yeah, so what's interesting about this is there's both the trend of you know young people losing their faith, and there's also what we call a counter-trend that we describe in the book of young people who stick with faith and why. And, and you know, I think Tim Tebow is an example of a young 20-something who is very out front with his faith, who certainly has never, you know, lost his faith such that we know or, it, you know, that we can, we can document um, at this point. But when you look at, at um, the culture, what is so interesting about what's challenging for young Christians is that their peers are more skeptical of ever than Christianity, and many of these peers actually had backgrounds within either Catholicism or Protestant Christianity. And so I think, I think that's a great example of, you know, here's a, an example of the counter-trend in Tim Tebow and the, the, the public nature of his faith. We see many other people who are in Hollywood, who are in music, who are in business, who, you know, are very much passionate about uh, the Church and about Christianity. Um, but what's different that we see now compared to the previous generation and generations, say, of the 1960s and 50s, is that there's a bigger gap now between young Christians and their peers, and they're, they're having to reach further in order to explain the nature of Christianity. And, and you know, the one thing we might say is that as, as much as we should su- support and applaud Tim Tebow's public, upfront faith, you know, what is it about that that's going to transform culture? You know, it's not just because he acknowledges Jesus that, that he's going to be transformational. It's because of the quality of his life and other aspects of his vocation and calling that people will respond to that message. So it's important for us to recognize the skepticism of this generation as well. Is there any attraction to this generation that looks at something like that and says, you are repeatedly subjecting yourself to criticism? by doing this. And we've all seen him kneel and pray after a touchdown or uh, during key moments during the game. Uh, it's very attention-getting. Uh, he is being ridiculed for it. Does, it. does it work into the logic of this generation as we're trying to understand them better, David, that some people would say, you know, if you're willing to voluntarily subject yourself repeatedly to that kind of criticism for your faith, that there must be something awfully special about your faith? I mean, do, do young people draw that conclusion? Yeah, they do, and they're looking for things that are that matter in the world and to their own lives and to their own sense of meaning and their own spiritual journeys. And, you know, this is where I think this is a generation that's very interested in truth and very interested in things that matter. Uh, they're also highly narcissistic and, and distracted, so it's 
sometimes difficult for us to get their attention on things. But I think they respond to seeing people that are sold out to any cause. I think the difference that we should keep in mind, too, is that they're a very diverse generation. They have come to expect that they should respect and you know, give anybody of any faith, of any sexual persuasion, of any ethnic background, I mean, of any, of any background at all, that it, you know, they, they fully expect that, that everyone is equally you know, right and equally valid at all times. And so there's a certain sense in which not many of these young people that we interview are willing to take huge risks for their own, you know, their own uh, positioning, their own brand in the world. And I think that's one of the things that you know, is, a, is a challenge for them. They're, they're not necessarily willing, like Daniel in, in the story of the lion's den, uh, necessarily willing to you know give up their life on behalf of their faith and and that's that's a, an interesting challenge that I think we face with this generation. We also have a, a generation I think David that is very interested in sort of leaving their mark on things i mean we, we're seeing this I think to a degree with some of not all by a long shot, but some of uh, the Occupy Wall Street protesters, or we think of people that get involved in things like, you know, uh, protecting the planet and animals and things of this sort. It, it seems to be a generation that very much is engaged in wanting to make a difference. Do we do we couch some of the impact of Christianity in, in those terms so that there is that sense of attractiveness to it, or, or, or two young people buy it, rather? Well, I think you're right that there's a real sense of, of wanting to make a difference in the world, and they're they're very much socially conscious. But what we find in our research is some of that is only skin deep for these young people. You know, they they, they it's really cool to care. In some ways, we could say that we've effectively made them consumers of causes rather than uh, what I think Christ calls us to is to be really spent on behalf of those causes. Yeah, it's funny you mention that. I, over the uh, the weekend here, I saw some pictures of Matt Damon, who's apparently filming a new movie down in Mexico, and he's been very much in favor of PETA and urging people, you know, if you can be a vegan, you know, more power to you, and very much on that side of, you know, protecting animals, etc., etc., and here he's captured attending a bullfight in Mexico City, and I wonder what uh, his PETA friends would say if they saw that. Yeah, there's all these inconsistencies that, you know, we inevitably come to. And I think this is the message of one of the things that Jesus talks about in his ministry is this the fact that there's so many inconsistencies in our efforts as human beings that it's impossible for us through our own through our own, you know, try harder ism to just simply work harder at saving the planet or work harder at, at addressing these causes. And I think my my challenge to us as Christians would be in, in understanding this next generation that we don't want to just get them involved in a cause to change the world, because it turns out, as we learn from the Gospel and from, from the Bible, that, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, and, and in fact, you know, we, we need to have a healthy reverence for the Lord's work, that we should care about these, these issues, but we, we, we can't solve them in our own human effort and power. And yet, at the same time, if our, if our faith is simply about, you know, believe these, these things in order to get to heaven one day and convince everyone else to get to heaven because of your faith in Christ, if, it's, if it is simply and only about you know, sort of getting people saved and salvation, I think it also does this, this generation a disservice. That they, they really are called and interested in, uh, in understanding how their faith gets worked out in the world. And so we owe them, I think, that the depth that following Christ, that following the gospel means we're concerned about eternity, but we're also concerned about how we live our lives and the quality of, 
of how, the kind of impact we have on our neighbors and on our workplaces and on our families. We're talking about a new book, You Lost Me. And, you know, this really ought to sit on the shelf, better put on the desk, of um, every youth minister, youth pastor, every senior pastor, everyone who's engaged in organizations like uh, YWAM, Youth with a Mission, uh, Youth for Christ, and so many others, as we gain a better understanding through the research of the Barna Group, uh, the attitudes of where young people are today, and most importantly, what we can do to get a better job at engaging the culture, capturing the culture for the cause of Christ, and as a result, not just reaching young people for Jesus, but keeping them for Jesus. Toward that end, David Kinneman, author of this new book, are, are there some of the trends that we're seeing, too, that some people feel as if, uh, young people feel as if they have to make a choice, that it's either between um, kind of launching out on my own identity or embracing mom and dad's relationship? Religion, or even in some cases, uh, with debates over everything going on concerning uh, science and bioethics and technology, even sometimes uh, young people may, feeling as if they have to choose between belief in God or science? Yeah, I think throughout this book and throughout the research that underlies it, we saw this really this choice that young people felt they had to make between their friends and their faith, between being uh, a young scientist or someone in medicine and their faith, between choosing to doubt or, or being comfortable with the doubts that they have and being faithful. Um, so many different places where young people feel like they, they have to choose between being the Christian they're called to be or being the person who they are. And, you know, that's that's a challenge. I think, again, throughout Scripture you see this tension where we, we have to live, you know, in the world but not of the world. This is something that Jesus prays for his followers in John 17, the in but not of tension. And I think that's the tension that every generation has faced. I think it's more pressing than ever now with this generation. And throughout the project, again, we talk about the reasons for disconnection, but we also talk about the reasons for reconnection. So, for instance, when we talk about having to choose between our faith and our friends, we make the argument that really the Church has done an an inadequate job of talking not just about the the singular uh, salvation available through Christ, but how Jesus himself had this heart for outsiders and, and really wanted to pursue people around him. You know, he was, he was notorious for hanging out with sinners. He had a heart for people that were lost. And I think this generation feels as though the church experiences and their parents and the sort of the, the nice, comfortable Christian way of life pushes them to choose, um, a, you know, a, a way of life where they, they have to choose the safe, comfortable religious life or exclude their friends. And, and really, I think it's a false choice. And in so many of these cases, we learn that the choice between science and faith, between friends and faith, they're false choices that we need to reframe for young people. For everyone who has a heart for young people listening right now, whether they're engaged in full-time ministry or just love the Lord, love young people, what would you say is, is the most significant message um, underlying you lost me that you want readers to take away from that can kind of be an action item for the church? Well, I care about this generation enormously. I love the church. I want to see them together. Um, and what we learn is that in so many cases, the, the friendships, the relationships that we think we have with this generation, they're not as deep as we imagine them to be. And I was also shocked to find how often these young people had no idea how their faith really intersects their vocation or their calling or what God calls them to do. I mean, as an expression, only 16% of young Christians said they knew how the Bible applied to their field or interest area or profession. And we need to do a better job. I mean, we owe this next generation so much more to prepare them to live in but not of this culture. 
And I think the research really gives you some tools, not only to understand the disconnections, but really to understand how do we reconnect, how do we learn from this generation and serve them as God pursues them and their heart and their potential service in the future for the kingdom. Some insights inside the pages of You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. Nobly published by Baker Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get information on the web. David Kinnaman, that's K-I-N-N-A-M-A-N, davidkinnaman.com. David, thanks so much for the time and the insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You ever wonder what your kids are learning in school? Oh, I don't necessarily mean things such as the history of the country and how to read and write and things of that sort, all important to be sure. But what are the other things that they're learning in school? You know what I mean, Mom and Dad, the other things? School's in session, and some things are taking place that perhaps are going to shock parents. It is incumbent, I think, on all of us to understand, to to help bridge the so-called generation gap and know what our kids are learning, how they're feeling, and ultimately how they're being influenced by both their peers and even by the educators. With some insights to help us all wake up to the realities of what kids are learning both in and outside of school, Andy Brainer joins us. He's a teen expert, author of an expose on teen sex and dating, what's really going on and how to talk about it, published by Nav Press. And Andy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me on the show. Parents frequently certainly will focus on things like, are you getting your homework done? What do your grades look like? Things of this sort, all important issues to be sure. And yet it's what's not on the official curricula sometimes that we ought to most be worried about. Right. We, uh, we, I spent uh, two years uh, researching this book uh, in the hallways of the high schools across America and, and actually came up with some pretty alarming uh, <laughs> results. Uh, I found that uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's an undercurrent of sexuality happening in our, in our high schools today that is akin to the sexual revolution of the 60s, but it's all being done kind of under the radar. And so I would encourage parents, uh, just like you said, there's a lot of things we can see that we expect kids to learn from school. But it's the relationships that they're having uh, in the hallways of the high school, when school's over, on, on weekends, that, that, we sh- that we should really be concerned about. All right, here's a fact check, uh, reaching out to some of the FAQ that parents ought to be asking of their teens, or at least aware of. Uh, let's begin with the first point that you address, and that is that there is significantly more sexual activity going on than most parents are aware of. In fact, according to a CDC study, half of high school students have had sexual intercourse, and 14%, I mean, you know, it's not for, far from being one out of every five, have had relations, physical relations, with four or more partners, and we're talking about kids still in high school? Right. I was in the school, um, and I won't mention the name of the school, but I, was, I have a chance to go into some of these schools and, and do assemblies and talk to students about you know, faith and, and what they're really thinking about faith and what they're thinking about life. And, 
and and I would I I commonly get a group of kids together just to ask about their dating relationships, and I and I just say, look, bottom line, you're not going to see me again in three days, so you know you can be honest with me, and I'm not going to go tell your parents what's going on, but tell me what's going on in the dating relationships in this high school. And as we're sitting around the table, uh, one of the one of the guys hop, popped piped in, and he he said, uh, Andy, here at our school. It's just like we, we just hook up with each other, you know, every day. And so, and, and hook up has a different meaning than maybe some parents might think that it is. They have a, they have a, a location that they'll go to, and they'll literally engage in physical activity. And, and when it's over, it's just kind of like they just kind of went and played basketball in the backyard. They, <clears throat> they come back to school, and they say, you know, they, they give each other high fives, and wasn't that fun last night? And, and then the next night, they do the same thing over and again. And so each night, we have teenagers that are out just hooking up with each other. And, and, and even worse so, not only is any sense of impropriety gone or shame or guilt uh, apparently just completely uh, cast aside, but then isn't it so that at certain levels we see, Andy, the influence of so-called modern-day social media uh, that is helping exacerbate all of this? Because now, you know, not only are the kids are hooking up, and then they're bragging about it on Facebook or, or texting each other, if not with the gory details, even with photographs. Oh, with the gory details and photographs, Wow. It's, it's unbelievable. In fact, I'll get I'll get emails from parents that that sneak on their kids' computer and they'll download the latest Skype conversation that they're having and it would I mean it just makes you blush to think about the language that kids are using and the and the uh, just the explicitness of what's going on. So we've gone from being concerned about our kids potentially being exposed to pornography in the seedy parts of town to now actually creating the pornography. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Uh-huh. And most parents, I mean, as much as you talk to teens, you also talk to their parents. What's the reaction? I mean, you're speaking upwards of, of 80,000, 100,000 teens every year. You have a lot of impact and, and opportunity to talk to the parents. When you, when you share some of these details, much as we are here this afternoon, what's the reaction? I find that, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of parents who would, would come and they'd say, obviously they'd be in the camps and say, oh, that's not my kid. My kid would never do that. My kid would never be involved in that. Uh, and then you have some parents that that say, "Okay, I see the issue. I see what you're doing now. What do you, what can we do to encourage our kids? And especially in the Christian communities, when I go in and start talking about dating and relationships, um, there are some honest parents that go, "Hey, look, um, we need help. Uh, we need we need folks that can bridge the gap between the teen relationship and the parent relationship. Help us coach our kids." And so you, you know, you kind of get both sides of the spectrum. But but I tend to focus on the ones that are going, "All right, we." We get it. We know our kids are not perfect. We know our kids could be involved in this. Teach me how to coach my kid to have a successful relationship in high school. A lot of parents feel overwhelmed by this, a sense of perhaps being out of control because of the number of counter-influences to what they're trying to teach their kids. I mean, I would assume parenting today is as it was when I was a kid, that most parents want to be able to set up an atmosphere in the household that that establishes and then helps to encourage uh, certain standards and and a standard for living, a moral code, et cetera, et cetera. Mine happened to, to, to come out of the church, but, you know, somehow some sort of a, a decent code of behavior that parents are not only having to compete with with um, the counterculture that is out there that's running contrarian to what they're trying to teach their kids and values in the home or or in church and then on top of all of this i bet there's a huge frustration because just parents feel as if there's little they can do right but i think um 
it's easy sometimes for parents to just defer to all the other influences, but the research has shown us now when you ask kids about the most influential people in their life, in other words, what are the most, what are the most uh, prominent voices in your life today, the research that's come out say parents still hold the number one spot in developing a worldview of that teenager. And, and to most parents, I can say, you know, how many times have we been driving down the road with our kids in the back seat, and we say something, uh, you know, our kids are acting up or something, and we say, be quiet, stop touching each other, and all of a sudden, this memory of you being in that car kind of comes through, and you remember your mom or your dad saying those things, all to point to uh, the things that we learn about parenting often come from our parents. And so I often encourage parents to think about if you have the number one influence in your child's life, and secondly, is friendships, peer relationships, and then third, the research comes out and says that the media holds the third position. So, so if you've still got the number one spot, then it's time for parents to start really parenting. It's, start, it's time for parents to really think about, you know, when is my kid on that computer and who are they talking to on that computer and who are they texting, you know, when they're at the dinner table and, and, and start taking control and, and be a parent in your house. My goodness, you're still mom and you're still dad and you have a responsibility to, to rise up and raise your kids. If you've just joined the conversation, Andy Branner with us tonight, teen expert, author of an expose on teen sex and dating, what's really going on and how to talk about it. We'll come back to more of the insights and our conversation tonight. If you want to join us with a comment or a question, join in. Toll-free number is 888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. That's 888-367-5329. A timeout. Back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Andy Branner with me tonight, guest expert on teens, author of a new book called An Expose on Teen Sex and Dating, What's Really Going On and How to Talk About It. You know, one of the other big uh, shockers here, I think, for a lot of parents is the amount of alcohol and drug abuse going on. Uh, There was a Department of Health and Human Services substance abuse report that came out that found that order over a quarter of teens, 25%, have engaged in uh, alcohol abuse under the age of 21, and 17% have gotten engaged in so-called binge drinking. There are folks listening to this program right now, Andy, who have never binged drank in their life, let alone doing it before the age of 18. Yeah, yeah. The uh, those are the old those are the old teenage adages, right? If we can only get them to stop drinking and stop smoking weed and stop having sex, then then everything will be fine. But but what we found is that those are just merely a veneer. All those issues, those classic teenage issues, are just uh, those are the, the surface issues of something deeper going on. And what we find those things to be true out here, we've got a little place called Kivu out in Colorado. We have over a thousand students every summer that come out here to do adventures in Colorado, and 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 during that time we get a chance to really live life with students. And so what we find is that most students that are that are just trying to make their journey through high school are struggling with significance. And and it might not just be a teen issue; it could be. I mean, it's probably just all of us, right? We all want to feel valuable. We all want to feel significant. We all want to feel like we've got somebody that'll listen to us. And 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 the more that I find kids that are engaged in activities, as you mentioned, the more I find somebody crying out, going, "Who in this world is going to value me?" Mm. 
who's going to be with me? And I, and I would say, and I say this every time I get in front of an audience, the number one issue in the teenage world today is not drinking, it's not sex, it's not drugs. The number one issue is loneliness. They're walking through life, and they just feel all alone. You know, and the amazing thing to that message is that's kind of the description of the, the human condition overall, isn't it? That's it. Yeah, that's it. And I, th- I find the more that I can, when I bend down to look a student in the eye, and I, and I give them the value that they deserve as being human, all of a sudden their eyes light up and they think, oh, wow, somebody, somebody cares for me. And if they can do that at home, if a mom and a dad can do the parenting thing in a way that they really invest time in the things that teenagers like to do, and they really focus on valuing their students, sure there's disciplinary things, surely there's correction things, surely there are issues where we have to get in and mentor and coach, but when I place value in my teenager, he longs to be with me. He wants to be with people that find him valuable. And it goes back to the old age-old adage that oftentimes the best thing that you can do to sort of inoculate your kids against all that the world has to offer out there is just to spend some time with them. And if you use the excuse, oh, but I'm putting in 60-hour work weeks and earn enough money so we can take the big vacations and live in the bigger house, I'm doing it all for my kids. In the end, you're going to find out that uh, uh, the opposite effect of what you were hoping for comes to fruition. That's it. And I tell kids, I tell parents a lot, you know, when my kids got to the age where they could they could do Legos and they started stacking Legos, uh, they would sit in the living room for hours just stacking these things and making these different concoctions of Lego buildings and stuff. And I got to tell you, Craig, I hate Legos. I just don't think that way. I have no patience. I don't, I don't, I can't put the six block with the four block with the two block. But it was the times that I sat in the living room and said, you know what, even though I don't like doing this, I know you love it. And to, to spend time with you, I'm going to do the thing that you like to do. Those were the relationships where, where relationships started being made. That's when they started seeing, hey, Dad really cares about us because he wants to spend time doing what we want to do. So I encourage parents all, all the time, you know, if you can find that thing, if it's video games, don't, don't just turn the, the Xbox off. Maybe sit down with your kid and say, hey, teach me how to do this. I'd love to do this with you. And get into their world. And once you get into their world then these conversations about drinking and drugs and sex and relationships at school and academics and all the different things that they're involved in start just bubbling forth without you even really having to ask any real hard questions. You're not suggesting to try to be a peer or a friend. I mean, you can be a friend to your kids, but, you know, your your kids will have plenty of friends in their lifetime. They're only going to have one mother and one father. Sure, sure, yeah. I think the friendship thing is... Is, is a different term maybe than I want to invest my time where you find time. And, and I'm going to show value to you the way that you need to feel valued. And, and if we can do that, man, it's, I'm telling you, it changes the way parents and teenagers interact together. Let's grab a couple of calls. Here we're going to go to Lori in San Jose. Lori, come on in with your comment or question for my guest tonight, Andy Brenner. Hi. Um, I um, have taught high school and different age group students and um, I found that, uh, you know, sex is a big problem as far as, you know, student-student interactions becoming more casual. But does your book address, um, uh, you know, faculty uh, becoming involved in promoting sexuality, like uh, what Governor Brown did uh, and the legislature did as far as um, SB 
I think it's SB forty eight. Forty eight, yeah, and you know, and 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 even the bigger equation there, Lori, is the fact that we've seen so much of almost substitute parenting going on in the classroom, and and some of it, I think, to be fair, Andy, a few parents kind of fell on their swords, didn't do their job, and then some, I think, well-meaning but over-enthusiastic folks at the the educational level said, well, look, if the parents are not going to teach their kids right from wrong and and uh, sex education, we'll take care of that for them. The problem is, you know, fast forward 40 years after so-called sex education made its way into the classroom, now all of a sudden it's moved from, you know, just good health information to suddenly uh, promoting an agenda. Andy? Right. So the book, to, to speak to your question directly, Lori, the book does not address the public school's responsibility or not responsibility. So I'll speak just off the cuff in, in, in the research that I found. It speaks more to what Craig was talking about. We see administrators all over the country who are standing up saying we need sex education in the classroom, and we find parents that are trying to opt out of those things in, in a way that they say, hey, it's our responsibility, we're going to teach them. Well, let me just give you a little uh, a little story. We had a guy that was sending his kid out to our place here in Colorado, and he said, are you guys going to teach sexuality out there? And I said, well, yeah, we have a whole course on dating and sexuality as it relates to the Christian worldview, and what, what, is, it, what is God's intention for us in developing a relationship? Well, the man was well-intentioned on the other end of the phone, and he said, he said well, I'd like my daughter to opt out of that class. And I said, well, that's great, because we don't want to do anything that offends parents. We want to make sure we're locking arms with parents. We want to do what you want to do. I said, could you tell me a little bit, like, why? Why don't you want her in that class? And he said, well, we're going we're gonna to teach her those things at home, and we just want to reserve that conversation. To which I responded, incredible. That's incredible. That's a great idea. Thanks for being good parents. And then I said, if you don't mind, might I ask, how old is your daughter when she's coming out here? I'd just like to know, you know, where she's going to fit in, where she's going to play, how we can identify her. He said, well, she's 15 years old. <laughs> to that I said, Brother, I don't mean to step on your toes, but that ship has already sailed. Yeah, you're 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 going to have the conversation. Yeah, well, you should have been thinking about that probably 15, probably you know, eight years ago. Our research shows that the average sexual experience happens at 12 years old. Yep. There you go. And that that is that is the stark reality that I think a lot of parents need to deal with. You know, even as we think about how we were parented, Andy, and wish to apply some of those lessons to how we in turn become parents and parent our own kids, we've got to realize this clock is moving faster than any of us realize. It's, it's fast, and that, that statistic of 12 years old means that 50% of them parents are younger than 12. And so we've got to, if we're going to stand up and take the, the mantle of teaching our kids about sexuality, then we've got to start those conversations, as awkward as they might seem, earlier and earlier. Some good insights. If they want to get copies of the book, Andy, it's available, I would imagine, through your website as well as Amazon.com. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Amazon.com, uh, AndyBrainer.com is my website, or you can just flip over to NavPress. Uh, dot com and you can go down to the teenage section and it's highlighted there. All right, an expose on teen sex and dating. What's really going on and how to talk about it. Information again on Andy's website, Andy Brainer, A N D Y B R A N E R dot com. Andy, thanks for the time and the insight. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon intelligence agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.